Steele and raising the evangelistic temperature at your church and your evangelism game plan. Dan Patterson is our guest this afternoon. He heads up the uh, evangelistic or apologetic ministry based in Brisbane. It's called Questioning Christianity. And I've asked him to come and help us raise our temperature. Great. Um, he's a former team member or former team leader of Ravi Zacharias Ministries Australia, uh, but left that organisation March 2020 to start his own apologetic evangelism organisation. Um, Dan, I want us to spend most of our time thinking positively yep. about equipping pastors and Great. equipping churches. But last time you and I spoke was just after Christmas, just after that first Ravi Zacharias report was released. And I just wondered if you could share with us a little of what's been going on in your pastor's heart. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. With the final report and as, as you've attempted to process some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I had little bits and pieces of the investigation trickling through from friends and inside sources. And so when the actual report came out, in early February, there wasn't a lot that was unexpected or new that was a part of that, as tragic and as deeply hurtful as, as that was to read. Uh, but certainly in the aftermath of all the fact finding and the asking of questions and then the lament that's been a big part of our heart language through all of this experience has just been making sure that that's led to healthy questions that need to be asked of the churches and organizations that knew things and what did people know and how was that processed and, and, and now in terms of an open pattern of repentance, what moving forward can be done to avoid these things happening amongst our institutions and under the banner of Christ as well. And so for myself, my heart has been moving through various stages of disbelief and sadness, of anger, of frustration, of lament, and then into real this kind of self-purification of what does it mean to be an agent of healing given all the hurts and cracks that have been opened by this and so uh, not only to keep doing meaningful ministry and to not let it destroy your evangelistic zeal and passion for the Lord and his word and for following him but to make sure that we don't leave people wounded in the aftermath of it as well but to help try and, and bring healing towards others and so that's really where my pastor's heart has been pointed. Yeah. Um, what's your reaction been to some of the decisions that have been made by the different Ravi Zacharias entities around the world? Many of them are still finding out what to do. So certainly the UK announced that they're splitting from uh, the US board. They already were an independent organization, but now have broken the, form for the formal agreement, yeah, and, uh, and so have decided to become a different entity in itself and will try and keep the Oxford Center running to be training evangelists and apologists. Uh, other offices like Canada have completely closed down. Similar in Asia, it's completely closed down. So the part of Asia Pacific region that I was a part of has closed down and uh, and others are still wondering what's what's next I think the biggest news has been with the US deciding that it will effectively close its evangelism and apologetics operations and instead become a granting organization where they'll use whatever remaining resources that are wrapped up in assets or in donations to be able to provide grants both to care for the survivors of abuse as well as to try and help support and fund evangelistic ministry to honor the reason why those funds were originally given in uh, in other ministries that exist over, I guess, in North America. So uh, I think everyone is trying their best now with things coming to light to figure out what is the most honorable way to be able to make sure that gospel ministry is done and the people that are hurt are cared for and we can do whatever we can to help restore the reputation of Christ. Um, What's your take on uh, the reaction of um, uh, Ravi's wife, Maggie, and Nathan Zacharias and this Defending Ravi website, because I'm imagining yeah. it must be 
a little, I mean, perplexing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough to be able to speak into it meaningfully. I've certainly seen elements of what they've put out online. Uh, I think it would be completely understandable for them to be skeptical. Uh, if you haven't got the experience firsthand or the evidence firsthand, and you feel like you intimately know a person and are so bound up with that life, it would be very hard to hear the kind of accusations that have been made and then the findings of the report uh, and to be able to give them any credibility. And so the initial response of disbelief and now questioning elements of the report, and it's hard to know where they really sit uh, in terms of what they believe and what they don't believe. Yeah. Because I think the pattern has just been to say, how compelling is the evidence? How driven is it by a narrative? More trying to poke holes in it and that this isn't a, a formal trial in which he's been yeah. convicted. It's findings of an independent investigation. And so just almost acting as the defense defending yeah. Ravi, trying to say how good is the level of evidence and the quality in which it's been represented. Are there ulterior motives that are there? And, and so I think it's completely understandable as to why that would be the reaction of family members who deeply love him and respect and admire him uh, and probably can't speak a whole lot more beyond that as to yeah. what's driving the psychology. Yeah, anyway, I asked you to come in today to talk about evangelism game yeah. plan and uh, you've got a, a game plan document that you're giving away which we'll link to, but uh, you're saying there's six critical keys to uh, building an evangelism culture yeah. in, in the church. Um, uh, take us through some of those. Sure. Yeah. So, so where this resource came out of was, as you can imagine, I've been doing uh, speaking in schools and universities, but also in churches and conferences and camps for many years. And I'll often turn up to a church and start having a conversation with their leaders and ask the questions around, what are you doing in evangelism in your church? And you kind of realize, oh, there isn't a culture going on here that there ought to be. Certainly. And so you ask questions like, do the people in your church feel like they're able to have meaningful God conversations? Is there an expectation that there will be people who don't believe in Jesus attending any of your events or any of your Sunday sermons or any of your life groups? Uh, to what degree do you plan into your calendar for evangelistic opportunities and how do you lead that up? How do you follow that up? And, uh, and realizing that it's very piecemeal and there isn't much of a plan. And so uh, a lot of just the studied reflection for me of seeing this done healthily in different places around the world was to think through, how can I just give some pointers? And it's not in any way a strategy. It's just a, here's a bunch of good questions to be asking as a local leadership to contextualize this. And when it comes to evangelistic culture, this isn't the things that you do so much as how you help shape the heart of your people so that they're burning to see people come to know Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in there, I share just a number of key elements. Certainly one of them is telling stories. So the idea of being able to say, hey, what are the opportunities over the last couple of weeks to be able to have meaningful God conversations or to see people ask about questions of faith? And the more and more you tell the good, the bad and the ugly of those stories, the ones that work and the ones that don't, it starts opening people up to the idea that maybe God wants to use me to have evangelistic conversations or the development of, of prayer. And how often are we meeting together as God's people to pray that more people would be added to their number, that the Lord will be saving people and adding them to his kingdom. And uh, just the absence of evangelistic prayer so often in churches. And I said, man, this is something that seemed to drive Praying the revivals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those things that used to drive revivals was just this 
heart that God wants to see people that are far from God be reconciled, prodigals to come home, spiritually dead people to come to life. And if that's God's heart, then that should be driving our prayer for your will be done and your kingdom come. Uh, and so building that sort of engine room of prayer regularly into your church in small groups and in, in pastoral prayers in Sunday gatherings. Uh, and then thinking through, okay, what does it look like for us to be able to offer a meaningful space for people that have questions and doubts to exist within the church community? And so one of the things that I was really impacted by when Tim Keller was doing his earlier ministry in uh, Redeemer Presbyterian over in New York was that once a month on a Sunday night, he would do Q&As. So you'd have your service and then afterwards people could just come and ask any questions of that sermon or of anything else. And just to create a space where it was okay to doubt, okay to ask questions. Well, that was the expectation that any thinking person, some of these things might seem strange or you might have barriers to belief and just be able to explore that. And so another element was just creating these spaces for doubters. And so I put these sort of six aspects in to be able to help give people a, uh, how well are we doing in these areas and what could we do to try and help shape the heart and expectation and opportunities of our people to be engaged in evangelistic work. We, we do a Q&A after every talk uh, and have for, I don't know, 15, 17 years. Yeah. Um, but is that not, how, how widespread is that? As a Very practice? not widespread. I mean, even in the New Testament where you've got Jesus standing up in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and he reads in the prophet Isaiah and then he sits down. And what was normal then was that people would then discuss what does this mean? How does this apply? How does this shape to our particular context? Or in 1 Corinthians 12 where, you know, let one speak and then the other, oh, 14, sorry, let one prophet speak and then the others weigh what yeah. has been said. And I just think this is a beautiful practice within the church to mm. have preaching and teaching of God's word, but then people can ask questions to clarify or see where it can next and i would say it's certainly not the well, norm in a lot of churches area, nobody's going to say oh dominic says that it must be true exactly <laughs> they're exactly. going to want to push back debate yeah. explore but a lot of the concern for leaders can come from i don't feel ready to answer those sorts of questions and so one of the challenges in another resource that are prepared on apologetics in the church is actually trying to help identify that this isn't necessarily just the job of the pastor, that so often with Q&As you could have a panel of people and you could identify people in your church who aren't necessarily pastorally gifted nor gifted at preaching, but are pretty good in the space of being able to field people's questions and certainly have the background knowledge to know where a lot of the apologetics challenges kind of come, who can help join a pastor for those conversations. And so just finding the people in your church, equipping them, giving them opportunity and resource, and then getting them on team to help you so that you don't feel like you have to be the fountain of all knowledge. Well, um, I actually think it's important not to be the fountain. I mean, to, it's actually good for my congregation to see me clean bold every so often. Totally. Because it teaches them I'm not the... Yeah. The uh, the infallible source yeah. of knowledge, yeah. but actually that I have to go away and research and find out. And yeah, and that's a really healthy model too, even within Q and A's, is just to say, be willing. I, I don't know, yeah. but you know, I know a guy who probably has a reasonable response to that. Why don't we look at this resource together, or why don't well, I pick well, up this book, or let me get back to you this yeah. week? It yeah. just is healthy for people to see that. Yeah, newcomer on ramps. Yeah, I mean. Give us your take on that. Totally. And so coming back to that expectation of, uh, I always want to speak as though people who don't believe in Jesus are in the room. So what I mean by that is, uh, imagine if I brought along my neighbor into your Sunday service how much of what's happening is going to be accessible to them. Now, they've got no church background or they've got a bad Christian experience. They're probably biblically illiterate. The question is, how much of the service acknowledges that they're there? And it's not always geared simply to the outsider, but actually is able to 
build on ramps into what you're doing. And so thinking through the language that we use, uh, do we often explain the things that we're doing as part of our liturgy so that yeah. they say, oh, okay, I understand why you're doing this rather than assuming they've grown up within that environment. Uh, do we say, hey, if you're a Christian here, hey, if you're not a Christian here, while we're speaking or while we're moving through the service so that we're inviting them to respond in appropriate ways, uh, are we taking things that are complex and making sure that we pause to explain what we mean? So if you use theological language, for instance, uh, the, just pausing to say, hey, this might be alienating, what this is trying to help people understand. And just looking at the ways of saying, if someone was brought along, would they be helped in understanding what Christianity is all about? And it's sort of the moment, again, in 1 Corinthians 14, where, where tongues is happening in the church, but there's no interpretation. That's not useful. Yeah. either to the church or to outsiders. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not edifying. It's not yeah. edifying, it doesn't. And so thinking through for outsiders as well, how are we building on ramps so that they know what are my next steps if I wanted to respond to this or if I've got questions or if I want to connect to this Christian story, where do I go? How do I do that? Is that made clear through the way in which we gather? So let me, I mean, you said you didn't actually have a strategy, but you actually do have a strategy and three words that I actually found super helpful just in terms of simplifying it for people big, medium, and small. <laughs> Do you want to unpack what those totally. words Totally, yeah. Are? So this is moving more from building an evangelistic culture in your church to then thinking, how do we develop a strategy for evangelistic ministry? And what I meant was, I'm not prescriptive in how you have to do it, but in these things, I try and ask good questions so that you can think but, about but where it's it happening. A, so it the big a good strategy to say, well, you need to have something big, something medium, yeah. something small. Yeah, so. and so what I mean by that is... Um, when I say big, I think big church. I think our Sunday gatherings, our special events, any time where a large number of Christians are gathered together, that's evangelism on a big scale. And so we ask a series of questions around seasonal Christmas and Easter events, around strategies in the church where the big question series and sermons or those sorts of things, and ask a series of questions of how well are we doing evangelistically in these big scenarios? And kind of key questions would be, when you do have a big gathering where a lot of non-Christians are present, are we making sure the most evangelistically gifted person is in the pulpit? Yeah. You know, or that we're driving it towards helping people better understand God and the gospel, or are we simply trying to placate the desires and, of Christians or feel like we need to put our lead pastors in, in the pulpits? And so really trying to think through, how do we do big evangelism well? The medium one well, is... On. I'm just, uh, just thinking there, though, uh, and I think I picked this up in your calendar... You want those big events to then funnel into the medium. This one, is exactly in, in the right. Rhythm that you're going. There's an interconnectedness to the way that these three three work. So the big is gathered church. The small would be groups and courses. Uh, the medium, sorry, groups and courses. And then the small would be your God conversations. The church scatters to yep. go out and work and live and play. That in those moments that the church are feeling like they're equipped to be able to have healthy God yeah. conversations and where to invite people to connect at a deeper yeah. level in the others. And so the way in which these interrelate, so a big gathering followed up by something like an introducing Jesus course or an alpha course, uh, and then having training scattered throughout the year so that Christians feel better prepared to be able to have good God conversations and what questions to ask and what resources to use. All these things free, feed into each other. And so David Jensen was saying to us a couple of weeks ago on this program that, uh, uh, he thought the churches that were getting the best evangelistic results were the churches that were running a relational evangelistic course four times a year. Yeah. Uh, is that your observation too? Certainly. It's, uh, it's almost a rhythm that feeds into itself. And so one of my good mates, he runs the Alpha course up at a church in Brisbane. And one of the things that they see with regularity is the people who just finish Alpha are the best 
evangelists to get new friends and family to come to the next Alpha. But if it's only run once a year or even twice a year, opposite ends, it just seems People to be a bit too disconnected, yeah. forgotten. But there is a kind of a, a rhythm that develops within evangelism where it's got to be sustainable for the church and for the volunteers, but certainly uh, evangelism begets evangelism and new newcomers to Christ tend to be the most passionate evangelists. And so finding a way to co-opt that into the way that you run it can be really healthy. Talk small for me. Yeah. So small is whenever I meet Christians in churches and ask the question, how ready do you feel to be able to talk about your faith? Given the cultural challenges that you're expecting your friends will bring up, what holds you back from talking about Jesus? Yeah. And uh, there is no end to the amount of fear or unpreparedness that's there. I'm yet to meet many Christians that say, I feel like I'm ready to have good God conversations. And that's not that I am fully equipped with every answer, but just I feel able to have helpful God conversations. And so I think this is an area that has fallen into disrepair in the church. Uh, in the Billy Graham but kind of areas we had... As we've as we've seen the fruit come from the evangelistic course, it feels like, which is good, yeah. but it feels like we've collectively turned our attention away from equipping the individual conversation person. Absolutely. And, uh, and it's almost like, you know, churches are good at big or good at medium or sometimes good at small. But this is why I was trying to get people thinking on all three levels, because if you hit them all, I think that is when the church is at its most effective. But certainly on the small, uh, Christians used to have the Roman road or two ways to live or four spiritual laws. And, and there just isn't the sense that any of these resources are as useful anymore, given the post-Christian context that we're in, biblical illiteracy. Yeah. And so, uh, so Christians, for the most part, feel like they're I've been talking to Tony blind. Payne and Philip Jensen. Yeah. And uh, there's a new version of Two Ways to Live, okay. uh, which hopefully will be thinking culturally about how to work, yeah. about to come out. So yeah. that's good news. Be really interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. And certainly Sam Chan's got some interesting stuff in how he presents in his, his book, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. Uh, my approach has been more trying to get Christians grounded in our story again. Okay. So um, taking well, the Christian well, story and being familiar. Like, yeah. I'll be the non-Christian okay. on, on, on yeah. the bus and yeah. go for it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so one thing that I give out in the game plan as well is the need for our having good questions to even prompt these conversations yeah. or where to go in these God okay, conversations. You, well, imagine so one, we're, we're sitting next to each other on the one flight of my from Brisbane, favorite, to, Brisbane to Sydney. Great. Well, Dom, it's great to meet you. I'm sorry right. that we're sitting in each other's air. But I uh, wanted to ask, have you ever had an experience that made you think that God might be real? Wow, I'll just break the fourth wall and say, do you really say that on the plane? Totally. And what I've found is, uh, I mean, there'd be banter in the lead up to something like that, just getting to know what do you do and these sorts of things. And But people inevitably ask me, probably given my role, what do you do? And I say, well, I talk to people about big questions and about God stuff. And they're like, well, what's that like? And I say, well, you know, and that, that would be my lead in. But this is a question to which okay, I've so never yet had a negative answer from anyone who's not a again. pastor. Hey, I'm just curious if you've ever had an experience that made you think that God or some big spiritual world might be real. Ever had an experience that makes you think God or some big spiritual world yeah, might, might be, be real. real? And what people tend to do is they start going back and they're like, oh, there's this one time where I had this dream or I had a vision or this one time something really coincidental happened after I kind of prayed for it. And I found these have been really helpful openers to maybe break through the skepticism or get past the 
watchful dragons of our trained materialism uh -huh. and just get people realizing actually for the most part Aussies are pretty open to some spiritual type thing they're more closed with institutional religion but they're very happy to talk about spiritual experiences and that tends to be a bit of a lead in another one that um, that I use really often is hey, I'm interested to see you know uh, obviously as a Christian I, I kind of have a view around this but what, what would you think is really wrong with the world you know given how much of bad news there is everything that we're seeing how would you put your finger on what's wrong with the world and then you bounce off their uh, kind of responses because I think the Christian story effectively gives one of the most meaningful explanations as to what's gone wrong with the world and why even we feel like there is something wrong with the world and so it's a great way to be able to talk about how having been created for good we've become damaged by evil and this is Jesus's diagnosis of us and that something needs to change not just to forgive us for the evil that we contribute into the system but also to change our desires so that we can become again who we were created to be the way we were designed to live and so I found that knowing the Christian story, that we're created for good, damaged by evil, that Jesus came to restore us for better, the role of the church to help sent together to heal, carry on the message of Jesus, and then that one day Jesus will return to set everything right. You've got a desire for justice, for suffering to come to an end, for bads to be put to rights. This is the hope of the Christian story, that Jesus is going to come and restore justice through judgment. And so helping to know the Christian story just means that wherever the conversation goes in any major themes or big conversation, uh, cultural topics right now, that I feel like the Christian story has something meaningful to say, just if you're aware of those kind of capstone phrases so or scenes. So role with me after one of those, those opening yep. questions. Yep. I've, I've said, um, oh yeah, here's my experience of, yep. of making me think God yep. was real. Where would you go? Yeah. Where's, where's the destination? How are you trying to get people? Totally, to totally. And I'd say, yeah, it seems to me that a ton of us have these sort of spiritual experiences, that there's some, something there. Have you ever given much thought to what Jesus said God was like or how he claimed to be able to reveal to us what God is like? What's your take on Jesus? And again, people usually are pretty warm, but they don't know a lot. You know, there's yeah. a couple of background stories and they tend to like Jesus for the most part, but they don't really know a lot. And the goal for me is actually to get them to consider to read a gospel with fresh eyes. Yeah. Now, I was someone that came to... To Christ just by reading through the Gospels. Yep. And so for me, I am of a huge conviction that the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures do the heavy lifting yep. in evangelism. And if we can get people to realize, what if Jesus is the invisible God made visible? What if this spiritual world has made itself known in human history? Would that be interesting to you? Would you want to know? And so to try and get them to open a gospel with fresh eyes and even uh, as is the practice of many down, down here in Sydney to be able to go through word one-to-one -one or to take person through a gospel to read scripture with them. I found there's a huge openness to this in a way that is surprising more so than the let me tell you 10 reasons why God exists and why you have to believe in yeah. him. Yeah. So, and particularly framing these evangelistic conversations in what difference Jesus can make. Uh, the, the heavier in an apathetic culture like ours, where people don't really care about the God question because life for the most part is pretty good, of being able to say, actually, Jesus really does make a difference. I mean, that, you're so right. When we were writing Introducing God, the, a key line a uni student girl gave me was, she said, Dominic, my friends don't care if it's true or not. Mm. They want to know what difference it'll make yeah. to their lives. Yeah. And, um, uh, and so to think about the difference Jesus makes yeah. is 
is exactly where I think we need to go. Yeah, yeah so um, we launched our YouTube channel a couple of weeks ago, and apart from the introduction, the first video we made is why bother with God? <laughs> because that's effectively the question most people are asking. It seems like a lot of effort to look into whether this is real. What would even motivate me to want to go on that search? And so it's helping to show why Jesus is good news before you get to anything on the truth of the news. Now, you've done some critiquing of um, evangelistic preaching, and um, you posed a series of questions that you want us as preachers to ask about our preaching, yeah. which makes me think, if you're asking me to ask this question about our preaching, you're thinking, we've got it wrong in our preaching. So what are we doing wrong? What should we do better? Yeah, I, I, it's always just better. <laughs> wrong, <laughs> wrong is not always the right language. Just how do we do this better? Because often with preaching, we set an audience in our mind. And often with a lot of preaching, particularly, we tend to try and help impress or lean towards the people that are theological gatekeepers that we want to say we're saying the right things we're doing it in the right mode and often we're ignoring the very normal real questions of people that are both christians in our audiences as well as outsiders or people that are exploring faith and so the kind of questions that i want us to ask is is the good news present in our sermon so when you get to the end of your preparation you look back like where is the good news present in this message. If someone's coming in, they're realizing, how is this going to make my life different? How does this save me from sin? How does this provide meaning and hope? How does this steal me through suffering? What is the good news in this message? And the other thing to think is, do we make arguments rather than just assertions? So you said before, people aren't going to accept something just because you're Dom Steele saying it. So you're trying to think through, all right, when I'm saying something, I'm actually offering reasons why they can believe this. And the kind of thing will be, because Christians will go and they'll make that same statement and their skeptical friend will say, why, right? Show me. How is that true? And so actually getting into the habit when we make claims about God being revealed in nature or that the Christian story is better than any alternative. These are claims, right? And we should try and substantiate our claims by offering arguments and not just kind of assertions. I think through, again, the kind of language that we use. Uh, When I go over my messages, I'm thinking, are there words that are unnecessary here that are inside a language that an outsider would be more benefited from if I just sub in an easier or more basic word. So just this week, prepping for another video on the the hiddenness of God, uh, using the word glory. And that wasn't all that helpful for an outsider to understand where glory, the glory of God, the intensity of God's... So we we subbed out for the word intensity, the intensity of God's presence. Rather than the glory of God's presence, we thought the intensity of God's presence would just be a word that would make a lot more sense for someone Mm -hmm. if they're an outsider and don't have that kind of church background. So just thinking through the language, and you certainly want to use language to educate, but just if you are using insider language, are you at least you use an explanation moment to educate through there? So there's a host of these 10 sort of questions which are just diagnostic on how can I make all of my messages, whether they're topical, exegetical, whether they're seasonal or apologetic, whatever the message is, uh, these sort of 10 questions to ask to say, how can I make this message better in helping to give at least an evangelistic flavor to it? Thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure. It's great to be here. My guest on The Pastor's Heart, Dan Patterson. Dan, uh, heading up the new Questioning Christianity Ministry based out of Brisbane in Queensland. And it's been great to have your company. Look forward to you being back with us next week on The Pastor's Heart. Hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating and review. That helps us in the rankings and lets other people discover the pastor's heart. And again, if you are able to help us out by being a financial partner, go to our Patreon link, patreon.com slash the pastor's heart.